and welcome to the Courageous Mama podcast. I'm your host, Madeline Stanameros. This week, I've had a fascinating conversation with Angharad Candlin. She's a psychologist from Sydney, Australia, a fellow speaker, a consultant, and a trainer with nearly 30 years experience of working with families. She's the lead author of two very well-respected and recognised parenting programmes, Keeping Kids in Mind and My Kids and Me. Harry has been a dynamic and entertaining guest. She's got that capacity to break down complex psychological and neurological processes into steps that are easy for you and I to understand and to apply in our family lives. Harry offers training around trauma and parenting. She does group work. She does leadership and relationships and online courses. And she's found that lockdown has given parents an extra opportunity and actually extra reasons to tap into some parenting skills. I loved my chat with her and I hope that someday we'll get to meet in person. Perhaps we'll even share the same stage one day. I'm just going to ask you for a little bit of grace over the recording. The Zoom wasn't entirely reliable and there are just tiny parts where my voice drops a bit. But I don't think it'll interfere too much and certainly none of Harry's voice gets interfered with. So here's my conversation with Harry. Enjoy. Harry, I'm coming to you in your evening and my morning, aren't I? You are. You are. It's Friday night here. Spring. Yep, we're just heading into summer. Yes, you're heading into the warm weather and I'm sitting here in front of a fire on a frosty cold morning. Mm. (laughs) How different could that be? I know. Blows my mind. We've had our cold weather for the year. Today and for the next few weeks, I think we're going to have sunshine, so that's nice. Will you get variants like that? I mean, when I lived in Melbourne, it could be like that. Yeah, it was, and it's been even more so. The weather over the last few years has been really quite bizarre. As you know, we've had the most horrendous drought here. We were starting in bushfires this time last year, and that was really very traumatic for the whole country, really. And then this year, we've had rain and crops are being harvested, and it's such a different look than it was this time last year. That must bring a lot of relief to the people. Yeah, huge amount of relief, huge amount of relief. Harry, you've got an unusual parenting situation, haven't you? Do you want to tell us? I do. Yes, yes. Uh, So I am parenting four boys uh, aged between 11 and 17. And, but I didn't give birth to them. The boys are actually my nephews. And uh, so my sister and I, after the death of her husband a few years ago, and then after the death of my dad, our dad, um, a few months later, uh, with my mum, and who now has dementia, uh, we built a house. And so I am a parent to four boys. They're 11 to 17 now, but they were sort of between four and 11, I think, at the time. But even that before that, because my brother-in-law had a very difficult and very rare brain uh, tumour, he was ill for most of the boys' early life anyway. So I was much more than an auntie to them right from the very beginning. And now they're just, I'm just their parents. So last night, I'm sitting at the dinner table, having a conversation about undies, actually boys' undies, <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> with a 15 year old and uh and he said oh my he actually said my parents are cool and I said 
when you meet parents and he said oh no just you and mum so I'm just I'm just mum to them now I'm just that other mum that's so mm. affirming isn't it but you were a professional consultant before you I am yes have you readjusted anything now that you've got the practical experience compared to before when you had the theory yeah yeah actually no and I think I, I think one of the things that I've always said so I've been working in the area for oh nearly 30 years it'll be 30 years next year so I've been doing this for a really long time and I I hope that I have never given advice or taught skills or anything like that that I wouldn't actually use myself and so in fact I haven't really changed anything. I've just literally just practically applied it. But even before the boys, I was very much around children. And so I was applying it anyway, you know, with friends, children and with kids that I've worked with. But I think really in the last, probably in the last 15 years, we've had a really huge change in parenting advice but also knowledge about neuroscience and the brain so those things are things that I wish I'd known 30 years ago but we we didn't actually know the research hadn't been done you know so I very much apply you know what I say to people I do so yeah and what do you think I mean you teach lots of courses and you see lots of parents Mm -hmm. what would you say is the most common issue that parents are facing today I think one of the most significant issues that parents are facing um, today is anxiety, that we have an anxiety epidemic. We're also in this situation where I think parents, they know that they want to do things differently from their parents, but they actually don't know what to do. So I find that a lot of parents are sort of caught in this no man's land of not wanting to be like their parents, not wanting to be authoritarian, but actually not knowing what to do differently. And so actually what then happens is they become, you know, sort of quite laissez-faire and are not sure how to parent. And I think a big thing is that parents, you know, really, really want to have good relationships with their children, which is absolutely imperative, I think. But instead of thinking about it in terms of a parent-child relationship, they often think, oh, well, I want to be my children's friend or their confidant you know or their buddy but actually children need parents they've got lots of friends they've got lots of buddies but they've they need parents and we we need to have a very warm relationship with our children but also to be able to be sort of firm but kind put in boundaries put in the guidelines and those kinds of things and and I think a lot of parents are afraid that if they come down put in that boundary then their child will just um, leave basically, Mm. I think, or shut down. I think one of the huge things that impacts on parenting and family life and children and young people um, and has, you know, over the last few years is technology and um, social media, those kinds of things. And that just feeds into anxiety and, you know, the pressure that kids have. So what's your advice into all of that? Well, it's such a big area, but I think... I mean, there are some really practical applications in terms of, you know, technology is to really put limits around technology very early. So our kids didn't get mobile phones until they were 14. So only the two older ones have got mobile phones. The two younger ones don't. We do sometimes have, they have their, you know, technology in their bedrooms, but as a general rule, we, we keep it out. We have got an, a fantastic system in our house where we can turn the internet off individual devices. So we do do that. 
so really to think about things before they get away from them. So actually think about it as parents. What do we want the culture of our family to be? And I think parents sort of drift along. They don't actually necessarily think about what do we, what are our values as a family? What is okay and what's not okay? And so I actually think a bit, a little bit of, you know, just thinking around that is probably really important. I wonder if you could speak mm. to this area just a little bit more in that, I mean, I see a lot of parents and, and I get a lot of questions. And particularly if I'm doing a presentation, parents will often come up afterwards and go, well, that's okay in theory, but if I take my phone away from my child at night time, mm. she'll literally mm. bang her head against the wall until it bleeds. If I tell them that they can only have X amount mm. of screen time, they won't, they mm. won't speak to me for days on end. Mm. So... What's, what would you say to that parent? Yeah, so what, well, what I would say is that, well, I would say to all parents is to, is to make the decisions early so you, you don't get into that situation. But for those parents who find themselves in that situation, I think what children need and what children really want are boundaries. And actually, children do not have fully developed brains. Mm. And so we can't expect them to make wise decisions because their brains are not fully developed mm. until the mid to late 20s yep. and so it's actually not up to children and children need parents to put boundaries in place so when I talk to parents who in that a similar situation I always talk about being calm and connected children need us to be connected Whatever the boundary is that we're putting in place, whether it's around technology or whether it's about what time they come home or, you know, whatever it might be, children are going to push back. That is actually a really important thing to do. And as children get older, they actually need to push back because developmentally, they need to prepare to leave the nest. So they've got to be able to push back, but they equally need, are not ready to leave the nest. They're just getting ready for it. So we need to be able to be firm but kind around that. And so we, and to understand that actually for children, having connection with their friends, there is such an incredible pressure on children around friendships and on Instagram and um, Snapchat and all of the other ones is, is for likes and for FOMO, so fear of missing out, all of that kind of stuff. And it is an absolutely real experience for them. So we need parents to understand that that is actually a huge big deal for them. For a parent to, is to actually step into their children's shoes, to have some level of empathy around it. So if, for example, so I've just got a new car. I love my new car. It's fabulous. If somebody was to take my car off me and say that I wasn't allowed to have it, I would have an absolute meltdown about it. I love my car. It's not a fancy car, but it is a new car and I love it. So it's to understand that if a similar thing were to happen to us, we would actually have a very similar emotional response to it. And so what we need parents to do is understand that that emotional response is valid and to stay connected in the emotion, but not actually give in, give in to the situation, is to say something like, I get that this is so hard for you. And I get that that actually is quite scary for me to say, you can't have your phone overnight. Um, because you might miss out on what whatever's happening. And I understand that that makes you feel real. Well, actually, I probably wouldn't say understand. I, understand is a very tricky word, so I try not to say it. So I would say, and I can hear how angry you are and that you feel it's unfair. So we're sitting with the emotions and we're not doing anything other than 
reflecting the child's emotions to us. And because if we can step into their shoes, we can understand what those emotions are. If somebody took my car off me, I would be furious. I would be very anxious that they would break it. <laughs> I would be very anxious that they're not going to give it back to me. You know, that's going to be gone, you know. And so if we can understand what those emotions would be in ourselves, we can actually see them in our children. And so we say, I can see how angry you are. I can hear how scary that is for you. It is, it's really overwhelming. But as your mum, because I love you, I need to make some decisions. And so the decision is that you're not going to have your mobile phone in your bedroom at night. And in fact, none of us are going to have our phones in our bedroom at night. And this is the big thing, because actually, as adults, we're just as addicted to our technology as children are, really. <laughs> but to be able to say, as a family, this is a decision that we've, met, we've made is that it's actually not good. So I, I spend lots of time, I talk to the kids about the blue screen and, you know, it's not good on their sleep and all of that kind of stuff. So they understand the decisions that I'm making. But I, in fact, never change my mind. Yeah, and presumably you don't have those sort of conversations in the heat of the moment. That's more of a sort of intel conversation. Uh, yes, so we do, yeah, well, in the heat of the moment, I will do exactly what I've said. I can hear how angry you are about that. But I won't, and I will be empathetic and I will be supportive of them, but I will not change the, my mind. The kids know that. They've tried it enough times now. <laughs> but I think actually if kids, if we give kids knowledge, so I had a conversation with our 15-year-old the other day and he said, he said, now I'm not asking this to be clever and I'm not being rude. I actually genuinely want an answer. So I thought, what on earth is he asking me about? And he said, you know that the teenage brain that we need to go to bed later and wake up later. And I said, yes, absolutely. That is exactly right because of the rhythms of the adolescent hormones and things like that. They've, he's been listening clearly. And, but I, and he said, so why do you make me go to bed at half past nine, 10 o'clock? And I, and I said, that's a good question. I said, it's because of school. And he sort of looked at me and he went, what? And I said, because you have to get up and to be at school by nine o'clock. If school didn't start until 11, then I wouldn't have such an issue with it. But actually, we've got a system that means you have to be at school at nine. And so that's why. And that was actually really helpful for him. He yep. was, oh, now I understand why you're, you know, because he was trying to, um, you know, because I give them information. I'm a psychologist. I give them information. But he, and he was trying to sort of integrate it and saying, you're saying one thing, but then you're doing another. Why is that? You know? Sure. And I think that's a fantastic question. And of course, mm. this is the battle, isn't it, for children is mm. my wants versus, you know, the structure of the world and how I've got to fit mm. into that. Just going yeah. back, I don't want to sort of dig completely into social media, but I do think we're on quite a good topic mm. here. At mm. the point where you're having that conversation with a child, and as you say, mm. you've stayed calm, you've validated mm. their feelings, um, among mm. which will be utter injustice on mm. their part. Mm. And you talked about the word connection, which you mm. might as well know is a really key word here but also at that point they're not feeling connected to you but we can no. still behave in a connected manner can't mm. we yeah they don't feel connected and what I say you know to parents is that emotions are emotions they are they just are they're not right or wrong they just are and they don't tell us the truth of a situation they tell us how we're experiencing a situation and so our experience of it is that right now I don't like you very much because you're putting limits on me and I am not happy about that. But that's in the right now. 
what we need to understand is that we need to be sure of our attachment, our child's attachment to us. Our job as a parent is to be a safe base and a secure haven for them. Mm. And so actually putting in boundaries and rules, you know, the thing is, is that we all have to live according to rules and boundaries in, world, in the world. Unless you're living on an island somewhere, we live in a system. And so actually what we need to do is to assist our children to live within the system as they grow up, which means they have to actually be prepared to live with boundaries that are put in place that they don't necessarily like. But yes. that's just the way it is. That's the way our, our society is structured. Yeah. So we actually need to help them learn it as parents. And I would much rather children learned that in the safety and security of their home than by you know, being arrested or being sacked or being expelled from school or whatever it might be. Brilliant. And I think one take home there for sure is being sure of our child's attachment. I think we, you know, today's parent, as you say, can question that and feel like they need mm. to earn it. But actually, yeah. it is a given, isn't it? Mm. It is. It is. So going back to sort of the anxiety that children are having today mm. that we perhaps didn't have mm. so much of 20 years ago, you've got school refusers, you've got fear, mm. you've got worry, you've got panic attacks in really young mm. children. And mm. I, I understand that you're saying some of that is social media. And some of that, of course, is, is our perhaps modern day parenting, wanting that friendship, wanting that mm. um, slightly more mm. permissive landscape in contrast to mm. our own parents. But then how do we cope with all of that, with children who are yeah. genuinely fearful a lot of the time? What's, what's behind yeah. that and what do we do? Yeah, I think what we need to do is to, is to actually do a little bit of investigative work and to really think about what is at the root of this. Because it may be that what you have is you have a child who was bullied or there was an embarrassing situation that happened at school, for example, or something happened. Mm -hmm. And the next day they said, I can't actually face going to school today. I'm so mortified by what happened. I'm so embarrassed. And then parents say, okay, all right, you know, have the day off. And then the next day, oh no, I still can't go because I still feel like that because they've actually not faced it. What they've done is avoided it. And so parents are being absolutely best meaning and loving and all of that kind of stuff. But if we, right at the very root of things, if we don't encourage children and support children to face whatever the core situation is, then actually it's likely to build anxiety. And there's what we need to understand about anxiety is there are two types of anxiety and they come fundamentally from two different parts of the brain. And so we actually need to respond to them differently. So if we have a child who has a generalized anxiety or we an adult or somebody who has a generalized anxiety, it's generally coming from the amygdala. So the emotion part of their brain, it's got a connection with the cortex um, because it's, there's a thought an emotion loop that can happen. But then we can also have situations where there is a genuine fear of something and that is based in the cortex. And so what we might do is we might talk about, we often talk about CBT in terms of managing anxiety, but if it's an, if it's, sorry, there's somebody on a motorbike just zooming past. I don't know whether you heard that, but there we go. So um, downtown Sydney. So if they have a generalized anxiety and we use CBT, it won't work because it's actually the wrong part of the brain. And 
And similarly, if we have a specific fear about something and we use some of the mindfulness and the meditation and physical stuff that really helps with amygdala and calming the amygdala, but it's actually about a real fear, then it's not going to work either. So we have to understand the core of the anxiety and where it sits. So just give me an example of generalized anxiety and specific fear. Okay, so a specific fear might be, well, I can actually give you a personal example, actually. (laughs) So when I was growing up, our kitchen caught on fire and I would have been about nine-ish, I think, when that happened. So it was a bit dramatic, you know, the kitchen's caught on fire and, you know, that's that and the fireys came and we all had to get out and it was all fine. It was fine. So that was very specific, but it actually wasn't ever dealt with. Nobody ever talked to me about it because the fire was put out and it was all fine. But actually as a nine-year-old, that sat very deeply within me. And because it was never talked about, it became this more generalized anxiety that I still have to a, to a lesser degree, but is still there about, did I leave the iron on? Is the house going to burn down? And so and so I'm aware of it, so I can, I can manage it. But that's, so they, ca- they are linked, they can be linked, but we actually need to understand, you know, where it's sitting. So now I would say I have a bit more of a generali- generalized, I mean, it's not very big, you know, now. It used to be bigger, now it's not so much, but around, you know, fire and things like that. And so one of the other things that happened, so in the 94 bushfires, my mum and dad nearly lost their house. It was um, very dramatic. And so every summer when I smell bushfire smoke, I have that sort of anxiety that just sits in the pit of my stomach a little bit. Now they've moved out of that area and it's okay. But I mean, there is certainly a lot of people in Australia right now who have got some anxiety about those bushfires from last year. That's your specific. Mm. Okay. Generalised? It's a, it's a hard one because it isn't necessarily linked to anything particularly specific or it might have been linked to something specific like it was for me with the, the house, but it's now 30 years down the track. So it's not a specific fear. There's just this sort of generalised anxiety about are things going to go on fire? You know, it could be around car crashes. You know, it's just this sort of generalised feeling of uncomfortableness and sort of sits in the stomach and churns the stomach, but there's nothing specific that's actually causing that particular feeling. So going back to the child who had a bad day at school, let's say mm. something, let's say mm. something out on WhatsApp and it mm. caused embarrassment. Is that a generalized or a specific? It's a specific. Right. So but what can happen though, is if we don't deal with it, if it doesn't get dealt with no. in the years to come, it could actually become a generalized anxiety. But wouldn't you say the amygdala is still sort of jacked up and on fire, even though, as you say, it was generally... Oh, yeah. No, it is. It is. So the amygdala comes into play in both ways. It's just that with a generalised anxiety, it sits in the amygdala. When it's, you know, a fear, what's happening is there is a feedback loop between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. And the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex are having this conversation. And it's like it's sort of building up and building up. But it's actually come from a specific thing. So it starts in the cortex of, oh my goodness me, the house nearly burnt down. And then of course that speaks to the amygdala. And so even when the immediate danger is passed, that amygdala is still fired up. So there's still this feedback loop that's going on. 
So if you've got the child who's, as you say, mm. said, I don't want to go to school, mm. how would you deal with that differently? Because it's not yes. a generalised, it's a specificity. Yes. So what I would do is I, so, well, we actually had the situation again last week. I mean, it's, you know, one of the kids, the little one, the 11 year old came home and he was clearly in a bad mood, which is very unusual for him. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's the way that we respond to it. And so it's about saying, wow, I can see that you're, really troubled by something I can see that something's happened that's really troubling you if you're not quite sure what the emotion is you know and so and it also depends a little bit on how old the child is if they're younger then often you can sort of sit and be a, have a bigger conversation about feelings if they're older so then it might be I can see that you're really troubled or you're really angry about something or you're upset about something and you know, I'm here if you want to talk to me. So it's basically saying, I can see that that emotion is there. I'm supportive. I'm validating that emotion. And we're going to sit in that emotional space. So if you've got a younger child who's happy to talk about their feelings there and then, it's about saying, wow, I can see that you're really troubled by something. And then it's like, yes, I am. And um, say, wow, that's it's really hard. It's really hard when when bad things happen. And, um, you know, do you want to talk to me about it? So what happened with my 11 year old, he had a bit of a meltdown, had no idea what was going on, but I could see that it was, he was really angry. Then when he had, like I stayed with him, I was sort of in the vicinity. And when he calmed, he, because he, he, he knows this, we talk about this stuff all the time. He said, oh, one of the kids had teased him at school that day. And he just was feeling you know, vulnerable, and he just couldn't deal with it, you know, and he just, you know, had that, that was what happened. So then we can talk about his feelings and about what he did in the moment, and how might we be able to problem solve this. But the important thing is to start with the feelings. I think a lot of parents start with the problem solving. Yep. But actually what happens with that is the ch child's feelings then never get validated and never get talked about. So we start with the feelings. I can see, I can see how upset you are. Gosh, that is so hard, I, you know, and, um, and then to be able to talk about it. So we sort of problem solved it. We sort of talked about who we might be able to talk to at school about it, which teachers, those kinds of things. And, you know, and that's fine. It's, it's been dealt with. But if we don't actually have those conversations with children, what children can do developmentally, what we need to understand is that children's imaginations are amazing. They're really amazing. That's, you know, how they get to draw amazing things and tell stories and do all of that kind of stuff. But it also means that they can imagine and catastrophize. Yep, yep. And if we've not actually had the conversation with them, what they've gone to is a catastrophe, which is very real for them but they've actually not been able to talk about that with somebody who might be able to problem solve it with them. And yep. so their emotional response is to the catastrophe that they think is very real because nobody's actually helped them sort of work it through. Yes. Yes. No, that's brilliant. I think what's really important is that we as parents don't go in and fix it for them. Yeah. We help them problem solve but we don't do the fixing because if we do the fixing all the time, they're never going to learn at, learn how to do it. And just to add to that, of course, if you have that conversation with your child and they want to solve it and you as a parent mm. think, no, I really want to go in with both barrels. And, mm -hmm. you know, mm. we really have to caution yes. ourselves, don't we, in order to build up trust. Yes. Their yeah. solution, we have to 
we have to respect yeah. their solution, don't we? We do. We have to zip it. I say to a lot of parents a lot of the time, in zip it. Just don't talk. Just, yeah. you know, whatever you want to say, whatever you want to do. And sometimes it can be very justified, but actually it's just going to make things worse, yeah. potentially. And if there is a situation where you actually think that you can't keep quiet about it because it is something quite serious, I would say that's something along the lines of that's a really big thing for you to hold. And there are big problems and there are small problems. And small problems, we can work out together, but sometimes there is a big problem and we need to have, have grown-ups work out the solution. And mm -hmm. so I would always be really open with the child about it and say, but I need to do X, Y, and Z. And the reason I need to do X, Y, and Z is because of, you know, A, B, and C. But I think it's always important to be able to say to a child that is a really big thing and it's actually too big for you to hold on your shoulders. I'm just going to interrupt the podcast to say it's Christmas coming up. What a great gift it would be to give a friend of yours who's a parent a gift of a book about parenting. Not a bossy opinionated book but a really beautiful fully illustrated hardback book on the essential tools of parenting and it's at a discounted price for you, my listener, pop and have a look at it on my blog. The link's in the show notes. And now back to our conversation. Um, one of the biggest and most important skills I think a parent can have is a thing called emotion coaching, which was developed by John Gottman. And it's really about saying, first of all, for parents to think about how do I feel about feelings, you know, to understand themselves and then to be able to say, actually, my child has experienced a feeling and what they need to do is they need me to validate. They need me to connect with them around it and to empathize with them. Then we need to sit in that space and then we move to problem solving. So really whatever emotion it is that our children are having, that is the key to where we should be as parents. I mean, it's quite simple, but it is, I think as you're getting a new tool in your toolkit, it takes a bit of practice to do it. But especially when we want to fix things. So, you know, really, really we do. We come from a place of love and we want to fix things for our kids and make things better for them. But actually what our children need from us is connection and intimacy. Actually, we know intimacy. that, don't we, experientially. If I've got an issue and my husband, he knows better. <laughs> but maybe in the early days we'd leap in and go, we'll do this. You know, we hate that, yeah. don't we? So we, yeah, we kind of know absolutely. it intuitively, but we end up doing it with yeah. our kids. Yeah, I had a really funny situation at work where I um, had had a phone call with one of my family members that had frustrated me and I hung up and I just went, oh, and one of my team said to me, I know you need emotion coaching right now, but I have to go and do a group. So uh, Gina's going to do that for me. And we all know it. We know it. We do it at home. We live and breathe emotion coaching. But we all need it. You know, we need somebody to just go, oh, that sucks. That's yeah. really bad. You know, that's awful that that happens. And also, I think there's, there's a fine line, isn't there, between like if somebody is saying, oh, gosh, you know, my life is awful. There's a difference mm. between saying, yeah, your life is awful and saying, mm. okay, you feel your life is awful. So it's... Mm. The difference between kind of validating the emotion and validating the yes. facts, isn't there? Yes, yeah. I can, and it's about, yeah, so it's about saying, I can hear how distressed you are. Yeah. That is yeah. so, it's so distressing. So 
I was thinking about this earlier today, actually, and I was thinking about what's the difference between empathy and sympathy. And, and the easiest way that I came to it to explain it in my mind was that empathy is feeling with somebody and sympathy is feeling for somebody. Yes. And so what we need to do is to, we need to express empathy with people genuinely of the distress that they're feeling. It's not about the facts. It's about the feelings that they have. It's not, it's not the truth of the matter, but it is how they're experiencing it. And, so, and we need to validate that and honor that so people feel supported and then we can help them find some kind of solution. And I love the way you said, help them find a solution, because actually yeah. their solution is the key. If they're going to leave mm. home with a toolkit yeah. of their own, we've got yeah. to get them to their solutions, haven't we? Not give them Absolutely. All. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Time. We have to sit on our hands, don't we? Or zip it. That's right. Well. Zip it. <laughs> yes. So going back to kids and anxiety, you gave a great example. Mm. That your child came home, you could see that mm. they were stressed and there was a specific mm. scenario that you could dig mm. into. But some parents will say, you know, I don't know, my child has just kind of changed overnight. They won't open up or, mm. or they're very needy and constantly mm. want my attention. So let's look at those two. Let's go for the mm. needy one first, because that can be a response mm. to a, a deep anxiety or trauma, can't it? Mm. Constantly wanting the parent's attention and actually taking it from the other children in the family or from your partner. How do you respond to that? Look, it's a question that I get asked a lot. And my response is always, children aren't looking for attention. Children need connection. And so what happens is, so a child has got some discomfort about something or some distress about something. And so that's sort of bubbling up. And if we don't meet that, what we do, and we sort of want them to feel okay, is actually we just kind of push it down a little bit. So actually it just bubbles on for longer. Whereas if we actually stop what we're doing and connect with them and look at them, then what happens is they go into a deeper place, but actually they come out quicker. And so the reason that I think parents are feeling that their children want their attention is because actually children are needing connection and are not getting it in a way that meets their need. And what we know is that children who have that need for connection met actually become much more resilient because they find ways within themselves to be able to comfort themselves because they have felt comforted and connected. So that's what I said. It's, it's your child is not looking for attention. They are needing connection. And so one of the things that I do is that I've always just had this sort of rule. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I don't push it on in, but it's my rule for myself is that when the kids come into my space, so if I'm watching TV and they've gone to bed or if I'm in bed and they come in, I stop what I'm doing. So I haven't watched live television for a very long time and I just, I just stop it, I pause it and I stop and I connect with them and I look at them and it's like, what do you, what do you need from me right now? And, and that's different from for if the kids are just, you know, sort of hanging around and, they're just, you know, being kids and all that kind of stuff. It's that if they actually come and seek me out, it's because they have a need. It's, it's about being able to notice that. And it's about noticing small emotions when they're small, rather than what then happens is they escalate. They build and build and build and build because they've actually never had that fundamental need met. And so parents say to me, well, I just don't have time. 
you know, I'm busy. We've got three kids. We're trying to get out in the morning and all of that kind of stuff. And I get that. I totally get it. But then I say to them, so if you don't stop what you're doing and meet the need right there, what will happen? And they say, oh, there'll be a, just, you know, a, just a meltdown. And, and I'll say, and how long will that go for? And they say, well, it could go on forever. And I went, I think you actually don't have time not to do this. Because yeah. this, if we actually can do it early on, it can take two minutes. Right. Whereas if we're not meeting that need, then it drags on and on and on. So what they can do if there's an authoritarian type parent is that they can just press it inwards and maybe it won't yes. be time interruptive yes. and they will get That's to right. school on time. What, how yes. would you respond to that one? That's right. So what we have, you know, we have children who are self-harming, they're cutting, there's eating disorders that are getting younger and younger. And those to me are all internalized expressions of a need that has not been met mm. somewhere along the line yes. it breaks my heart and i you know i think actually what this child needs or needed a long time ago is for somebody to just stop and it doesn't it's not necessarily a mum or a dad it could be a grandparent it could be an auntie or an uncle or a teacher but the, and there's an older person in their life they feel connected to and just coming at that from the other side a second, what if you've then got mm -hmm. the parent who says, but I do, I spend, mm -hmm. you know, we do cooking together and, and I get up early and we hang together before school, mm -hmm. but still, you know, my son constantly interrupts and dis is disruptive. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Where's that coming from? I think, so what I would do is I just sort of investigate a little bit and, and so, so the first question that I have is that are you connecting in a way that's meaningful for your child or it's meaningful for you? Yeah. So that's the first question. And it, you know, it could be either and no judgment at all. It could, you know, but it, it, that's a way of sort of trying to sort of investigate. So I sort of get parents to put their sort of their Sherlock Holmes hat on a bit and what, what is this actually about? And then sometimes it's actually talking to the children you know, having the conversation with them and naming it and saying, saying, I feel like you find it really difficult when I'm not there or you need to be with me and, you know, all of those kinds of things. So it's actually about trying to work out, and I try and do this with parents, is what it's actually about. So for example, and sometimes kids can do it in a way that is, it, it's a bit mysterious. So my 13-year-old, um, who's about to be 14 in three weeks. He keeps telling me he is, uh, he is hilarious. He is loud. He is a rugby player. He lives life at a hundred percent. We have been in emergency more times with him than any of the other kids, you know, and he, he's just huge, loud and everything. And what I want to do with that is actually take a step back from it because it's kind of so loud. But my sister actually said to me, when he does that, what he actually needs, he needs a hug. And I realized, you know, and I sort of watched this, and he can be very sort of loud and he can be very angry about things and, you know, un injustices and all of that kind of stuff or whatever it might be. And my sister would just walk straight into that and gives him a hug, which seems to be so counterintuitive because what he's doing is actually pushing you away with his sort of very loud voice but actually what he needs is a hug he needs connection 
That's great. That's and great. then it's like, and then it's all, you can almost see him just, yeah. you know, he does that. Whereas the 15 year old, but often what he does is he comes into where I am and it's like when it's quiet, everybody's gone to bed and he comes in and what he does is he lies across the top of the sofa. And again, he's very tall <laughs> and he'll tell me about whatever's going on or whatever. And then what he'll do is he'll, we'll talk and then he'll sort of flip down onto the sofa to give me a, a hug, you know, but he's always been much more articulate and he, he's the one who talks incessantly. And sometimes I have been known to say to him, can we just, you know, <laughs> just have some quiet, shall we? And whereas the little one, the 11 year old, he's my shadow. And because he was younger when his dad died, he actually has got a lot of generalized anxiety about people dying. It's only now that he's, he will talk about it. So, I mean, fortunately, I do know what this is about for him because of my training and experience. So I've always known what it is, but it's he, what he's needed. He hasn't been able to articulate it. He hasn't been able to articulate until quite recently that he spends a lot of time anxious that people are going to die. So that's why he's that I'm going to die. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, and I can't change that. I can't change the fact that this little one has had so much, you know, disruption in the first few years of his life. But actually what we're seeing, he's like a changed boy and he's just, he's absolutely delightful and he's confident and, you know, and, but it's still there, but it's getting better. And so, and this is another sort of example of, you know, that anxiety. There's a lot of building work around, you know, in Sydney at the moment, lots of apartments being built. And he always sort of expresses his displeasure at um, these tall apartment buildings. And I thought it was about aesthetics. And he just didn't like tall apartment buildings. And his dad used to be a volunteer firefighter and had said at some point, you know, you don't want to live in a, an apartment that's over the ninth floor or something because the fire department ladders can't reach that high oh wow <laughs> and I was like I only worked that I, he literally only said that to me about three weeks ago okay. and uh and it's that's just sort of sat in there somewhere you know mm-hmm. and so I think that's the other thing that we we with kids is that we can be mystified by their behavior sometimes but actually when we give it time And when we allow it to open up, we realize that somebody somewhere has said something random and that they have just held on to. And so it's actually real for them. We just don't know what it's linked to. So we need to be keeping those channels of communication open. And it comes back to your word investigate, doesn't it? Mm, mm. Three different kind of styles of child there. The one that hails you, the one that kind of quietly comes in. Mm. The least obvious one to deal with is the one that's being large. And, you know, we've all got that friend mm. just bursting with confidence. Yeah. And, yeah. and I yeah. think the word there that actually go counterintuitive. What mm. is you to move in, not to move backwards? But yeah. I think for um, another type of child that you haven't mentioned and perhaps you don't have, mm. and that's the child who won't share. And this. Can- oh, yes, I do have one of those. You got one of those too. <laughs> I've got one of those too. Yes, that's the one who's, who's just finished his HSC, which is the A level equivalent. So he's just finished school, and yes, he doesn't. He share. doesn't. 
Okay, great. So riff on that a bit. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, it's interesting. So he is the one, you know, he's 17 and he's in his bedroom and, uh, you know, and he's a musician and he loves music and he's, you know, that's what he wants to do and he's plays his guitar and he's got this whole setup, you know, and, you know, you don't hear what's going on with him. So I was actually telling a friend about this today. So he's got a job. He works at McDonald's. And so he will often finish quite late. And so my sister will usually does the pickups and that time in the car for him is the time. They don't actually necessarily talk very much, but they will have a little bit of a, a chat, but that's the thing. And then a couple of weekends ago, he had a shift that finished at 3 a.m. And it's never happened before. It will never happen again. And I said to my sister, I'm going to pick him up because in Sydney, it would have taken him two and a half hours to get home when it's a 15 minute drive. So he was like, no, 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 it's fine. I can just get the bus home. It's my responsibility. It's my shift. And I said, it's ridiculous. Three o'clock in the morning, I'm coming to get you. So I met him and he got in the car. He's obviously, he was in the middle of his exams. And so we just had a bit of a conversation about, you know, the next exam that he had. But that it was actually about, for him, it's not so much about talking, it's about actions. And so the fact that I picked him up at three o'clock in the morning when he was like, no, I'm independent. I can do this. You know, I can get home. And I said, no, I'm picking you up. So again, we didn't talk much, but it's being able to catch him and make sure that it's meaningful, really. Mm -hmm. And it's all about the actions. So it's actions and actually it was presence as well. Presence. Presence. Yeah. Yeah. And you had your sort of magic moment with him, but there's mm. going to be a parent out there who says, my child's gone into a tunnel and I don't think it is a given for the teen years, but I do accept that some parents are experiencing that and they haven't got the moment when they do move in, the child moves mm. away. Mm. How create space where they give presence and, you know, their presence? Yeah. You know, how can they create that space? I think it's actually... Do you know, I think this is where love languages can yeah. come in. Um, and so there's the five love languages. I'm no, by no means an expert, but it is about understanding what is your child's love language. And so is it, you know, is it quality time? Is it gifts? What it, you know, is it um, acts of service? Whatever it might be. And actually making sure that when you connect with them, it's in their love language, which may not be your love language, but it's their love language. I'm just looking on podcasts to see which one, because I did um, a series mm. of love languages and I, I can't find it because my Apple's upgrade. Mm. <laughs> As we speak. Yeah. <laughs> no, so that they can go back mm. and get a broader context mm. on the love yeah. And I think the other thing, the other thing is, is to know that parenting is not about 18 years. Parenting is forever. Yeah. And I would say, you know, for my, when my, when I was growing up, I wasn't particularly close to either of my parents, particularly not my dad, but actually in his later years, my connection with him was, was very significant and was very meaningful for both of us. And to not be not be put off and to understand that this is a long, this is the long game. This is parenting, you know, forever. And, and actually, 
you know, understanding that while, you know, a 17 year old, he likes to sit in his room and he doesn't come out and talk very much and all of that kind of stuff. But this is only now. This is just now. Yeah. You know, it wasn't before mm. and it won't be in the future. It's just right now. And what he needs is me to be committed and that I care enough about him to be interested in his world. Yeah. He has no interest in my world. That's absolutely fine. It's actually being in, invested in their stuff that they like. And music in our house is an incredible, you know, connector. And I love what you say about, you know, parenting being the long game. And my book is mm. called Parenting for Life. And that was very intentional. Mm. Play on words, of course. We mm. want life in our parenting. Mm. Mm. It's a long game. And as I often say on the podcast, we'll be parenting um, adults for a lot longer Mm. absolutely yeah out there where it doesn't look great now that doesn't mean it won't be great forever no no so i'm going to ask you as i do ask everybody who comes on my podcast Mm. uh, as you know it's called the courageous mama Mm. courageous thing that you've done in your life Mm. um so it's interesting i think because i think when we're being courageous at the time, we don't necessarily know that we're being courageous. Um, we just do what needs to be done. And I think a lot of parenting is that. But I think reflecting on it, the most courageous thing I've done as a parent was actually when the, my brother-in-law was dying and it was the night that he died. And we didn't know that he was going to die that night. But my sister had been with him in hospital all day and then she came home and she was exhausted this has been going on for months he'd been in hospital it was awful and I then just felt like I needed to go to the hospital and to be with him and so I raced to the hospital and and I I got into his room and it was funny he was trying to watch MasterChef but he was sort of slipping in and out of consciousness and I just I just felt like I needed to to be there and to I think give him permission at that point to let go it had been such a struggle for him but and I knew that he was so worried about the boys I think that's why he had held on for so long was that you know he's these four little boys all in primary school from kindy up to year six and their dad was about to leave them and forever and we had a conversation about it where I said, I've got the boys, I've got them. It's, I had to and make a commitment that those boys, you know, were not going to be left. And I mean, they, my sister was there, obviously, but it was incredibly difficult. But that, you know, that this was not going to be, you know, an auntie who sees the kids at birthdays at Christmas, but actually that I, that they had another parent and that I would, was totally committed to raising those boys that's a huge promise to make isn't it but it's mm. courageous definitely thank you harry you are just brimming full of wisdom and you're generous mm. you've got so much life experience and parental experience with other parents mm. Mm. i've appreciated this chat and i know that people who listen will get their nuggets mm. as well there are so many great take homes thank you mm. It's great. It's been wonderful. I've loved it. That's a precious moment that Harry shared with us there. I always feel so privileged when guests share from the heart. 
And Harry made reference to a couple of things which we've covered in more detail on the podcast. She chatted about thinking ahead about your family values and your family culture. Now, whether you've got younger children or older children, this is a great thing to do and actually a great fun thing to do. And I did a little two pod series on how to put that together with your children. So do pop to podcasts 29 and 30 and the links are in the show notes. She's also referred to love languages. Are you familiar with those? If you'd like to understand them better and work out what your primary love language is, but also what are the primary love languages of your children? What are you offering? And actually, what do they really want to receive? You might be quite surprised. So do pop to podcasts 9 and 10, and that's a little series on that. And again, the link's in the show notes. And a big thank you to those of you who have made contact. I so appreciate your encouragements, your thoughts, your questions, and the feedback from the parenting tools that you've tried and you've had some good experiences with. It really is the most wonderful thing to know that you're putting them to the test and getting some great results. When people reignite their connection with their children or they deepen that, that is just such a precious thing to hear from you. Thank you. And a great question that I had the other day is, can we really ask questions in person and how does that work? Well, if you pop me an email and you want to just ask a question about a situation you're having with a child or in family life, I'll work out a time with you that we can have a chat. Quite often, just a little tip or a tool can make all the difference. And I do always try to make time to have a quick chat with listeners. And if you've got a more in-depth situation, then people sometimes go on to book a session where we can flesh things out with a little bit more time. They're excessively priced. You'll be pleasantly surprised. So do pop to consultations on my blog and look for the link below in the show notes. And don't forget, you can pick up the book there for £15, including postage. Someone said to me today that buying a parenting book for a friend is similar to buying a recipe book. It inspires. And she particularly thought that about my book and she's given it to a few friends. And that's my main aim, to have beautiful, accessible and affordable life-enriching tools to empower, to equip and to encourage parents so that we can raise emotionally healthy children. So thank you for joining me and Harry today. Do look for her details in the show notes if you'd like some emotional coaching training or to take up one of the courses that she offers. Or simply Google Angharad Candlin. She's all over the place. Similarly, you can find me online either at thecourageousmama.com and on Instagram at thecourageousmama or madelinestanny at icloud.com. See you next week.